Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. I am Demetrius Malbro, your host and chief data protection chef, and I am honored to bring you more gumbo of insights and information about data protection today. And on Data Protection Gumbo today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Guy Holmes. And Guy is a physicist and also holds an MBA from Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. He is the founder and CEO of Tape Arc, and he's working to rid the planet of legacy tape storage. He's also founder of Spectrum Data and a director and founder of several other companies operating in the oil and gas and import sectors. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo. Guy, how are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you very much, Demetrius. Yourself? I am doing well. Just getting over a little bit of a cold and sounds like you are yourself. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So what exactly um, do you mean by archive, or I guess what I mean by archive and legacy data in relation to, I guess, some of the data management practices that we're dealing with today, Guy? Um, I I call this collection the second largest collection of data in the world because the first largest is the data that's sitting online, in online systems on spinning disk uh, or in Google or in uh, on Amazon Web Services where this data is being directly created and stored in a permanent way as opposed to data that historically used to be created and then stored by writing it to a, a second set of medium, which was tape, and then that tape was stored off-site. So um, in my view, uh, the second largest collection of data in the world is all the data that was created prior to it being online and um, it's a massive collection it's it's uh, it's hundreds of millions of tapes that have been created um, really since the on the the development of tape in the 1950s right through to LTO 7 which are being created as we speak Um, the what used to be called an archive or a legacy data set uh, used to be something that was about 10 years old. And as newer tape drives have come out and newer recording formats have come out and newer software products have come out at increasing rates, the concept of archive or legacy data has shrunken from data that was 10 years old or 20 years old to data that's now about two and a half to three years old. And the reason it goes from being non-legacy to legacy is because as soon as you outgrow that tape drive and you get a replacement, the data that you created before that may not be able to be read in your new device, and therefore it becomes a second pool of data that needs almost second attention. So it's it's no longer primary data, it's, it's considered legacy. So what you've seen over time since the really the 80s is that the time span between what was legacy and what uh, what is today has shrunken from 10 years to about about two years okay great so uh, also I guess you, you so you speak of all of this this data that's stored so can you get into I guess how and where some of this data is stored and when is it accessed uh, from storage and who is it accessed by sure um, so uh, over time corporations have either introduced their own policies or governments have created policies 
in relation to what data needs to be retained and for how long it needs to be retained. Mm-hmm. Um, things in the United States like Sarbanes-Oxley came in, which required different types of data to be held for longer periods of time. And what previously could have been disposed of now is something that needs to be uh, maintained for sometimes literally hundreds of years is the expectation. So, for instance, medical data uh, in in Australia, where I'm based, needs to be kept for the life of the patient plus 20 years. So um, if you can imagine a tape being created with, uh, with data from a two-year-old child up to an 80-year-old man and being written to the same tape, that tape might need to exist for... Uh, 150 or 200 years to meet the legal requirements of keeping the data around because it contains two people, one who's age two and one who's age 80. So, um, so this, this, uh, these archives are, are becoming uh, a lot of companies are instituting infinite retention policies as well. Um, in the construction industry, it's the life of the building plus 20 years. Um, so, and of course, governments, uh, uh, playing a role in, in how long this stuff needs to be kept. Now, the typical practice has been and continues to be today that you create your data and then you back it up uh, to a tape and uh, on some regular frequency, a courier van will arrive and collect uh, that tape and take it to off-site storage and it'll go into a physical room on a shelf with, um, with tens of millions of other tapes that are in the same state. Um, and there are many large companies that provide bolting services like that. But the data at that stage is completely offline, separated from its uh, its parents, the tape drive. So there's no way to actually access it or read it. Um, and in many cases, companies end up putting the data into these vaults and leaving it there for forever. Uh, right. Even if they don't have the tape drive to read it anymore, they still keep the data uh, in the vault. So... These pools of data are continuing to grow, um, but in my view, they're reaching kind of a critical state where if, if we don't do something about them, we're, we're going to end up with a very large orphaned uh, set of data that is going to be very, very difficult to access. Or, I guess this, this trove of data or the deluge of data, as I've read before as well, we, we've been talking about this for a long time, and it seems that um, tape doesn't seem to, um, I guess, want to go away, which it probably still has a, a lot of use cases today. And, you know, some companies have tried to write tape off as not being capable of uh, keeping pace with, I guess, where technology is going today because everything is really digital. And yeah. uh, for some reason, tape, uh, some people view tape as not fitting in that uh, digital criteria. Uh, to uh, continue to keep pace with where we're going today, and I, I guess it, I guess tape probably is the elephant in the boardroom, just sitting, you know, virtually and quietly on the table somewhere, and it seems that no one is really addressing it. You know, there was just a, another huge breach, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, it, it took it took um, you know Equifax. You know, quite some time to report on it, but I guess we won't go into the depths of that. But it's just another example of how important and critical data is and also security. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the issues around uh, this kind of off-site data storage 
and I guess tape being the the elephant in the boardroom and why no one is addressing it. Well, um, I have a saying which I I think I came up with. I haven't seen anyone else say it, but that is, tape isn't dead, but yesterday's tape is. And mm -hmm. if you created a tape yesterday and sent it to offsite storage, there's a reasonable chance that um, that that tape may never be used again. And uh, uh, after several years, it will become increasingly more difficult to be used. So what's happening is we're creating these pools of data. We need tape tomorrow. Its capacity far outstrips that of conventional disk. Its speed of, of writing uh, backups is faster than conventional disk. Um, uh, but as soon as it's created and sent somewhere else, it becomes... Uh, basically a sunk cost where somebody's prepared to continue to pay every month to leave it sitting on a shelf despite the fact that they can't access it, uh, which is you know, reasonably frustrating that you spend all this money creating this data and then uh, two years later it's there, but you just can't quite touch it. Um, so a lot of companies are spending a lot of money. I, I was speaking to one um, last week. They have 480,000 tapes. Wow. It's their backups from all of their locations uh, in the mining sector, and they don't know what's on most of them anymore. They have to keep them. They have an infinite retention policy. The tape drives that they would use to read them, they don't have anymore. They're not the tape drives aren't produced anymore, and they're in limited supply. So for them to get a hold of this data and do something with it is becoming increasingly more complex. And of course, Everyone's looking at their budget saying, why are we spending $300,000 a month on an air-conditioned room with our tape sitting in it when we can't even access the data? But nobody's really had an elegant solution to solving the problem. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, that, that seems like an interesting use case. Um, I, I haven't worked with um, a mining company before, but I, I guess all companies today would at least have to have um, disaster recovery and storage at the forefront of um, their business, right? Because, once again, everything is digital, even all the way down to the miners uh, digging for um, whatever they're digging for, right? <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. So, I guess, w what are some of the specific problems that, that you see on tape media uh, when when doing legacy recovery work? So, let's let's jump into some of the I guess the main reason why we store data in the first place is to recover it, right? So what, what are some of the issues you see? Uh, look, there's a variety. So if we, if we look back in, in time, uh, back to really the first commercial version of tape, which was a round reel-to-reel -reel tape like you see on old Star Trek movies. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so that would have been a nine-track tape. There was a seven-track tape just before that. But the nine-track was really the first tape to take some commercial stance in the market and get used on a, on a fairly large-scale basis. So tape constructs back then, and they're really not changed. They're, they've changed, but they haven't changed that significantly, are essentially a strip of plastic mm -hmm. uh, or mylar with some glue on it and then some oxide sprinkled onto it which binds the oxide to the tape, and then you record into that, into that, that substrate. Um, what we've seen over time, and we've, uh, 
I've done numerous projects on data going back to the 60s uh, when, when a lot of these were created. You're short um, age now, Guy. <laughs> well, I wasn't doing the work in the 60s. I was doing it last year, but these tapes were created in the 60s or 70s. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> um, the, what happens over time is they found that the glue that held the, uh, the oxide to the tape was, was called, uh, had a, uh, was hydroscopic, which means it had a propensity to want to absorb, absorb moisture into itself. Hmm. Um, and what that meant was when you tightly wound uh, 3,600 feet of tape onto a spool um, and then left it for 10 years, the glue would absorb moisture from the air. The glue would therefore expand, and it would expand into a very finite space because all the layers of tape were wrapped around each other very tightly. And what would happen is the glue would eventually sort of seep through the oxide and stick to the layer of tape above it. So when you go to unspool one of these tapes, it's like unspooling a roll of, of uh, scotch tape. It's, it's stuck to itself. And when you unspool it, if you do it incorrectly or too fast, the data comes off on the back of the tape instead of on the side that it should be on, and then it is impossible to read. Okay. So that's called stiction. That's probably one of the first known conditions that we've seen in the industry. And it, interestingly, was uh, a product of the brand of tape more than uh, the way that the tape has been stored. So um, okay. uh, a very uh, inexpensive brand of tape um, stored in the best possible circumstances is still very, very difficult to read. The best brand of tape stored in the worst possible circumstances, I've seen tape stored in sheds in, in Papua New Guinea where they come in with mold and everything growing on them, they're perfectly readable. So okay. some companies made strides towards improving the way that they created their tapes, and other ones did it fairly inexpensively. And if you decided to buy a bargain on the day 25 or 30 years ago, you would be suffering the consequences now of trying to read those tapes. So stiction was probably the first thing we saw. Stiction just stands for sticky friction, which means the as the tape tries to pass over the tape head to be read, it creates friction, it heats up, that causes the tape to stick to the head, and then the whole tape mechanism can explode, basically, and the tape can come off the spool and be severely damaged or the oxide peeled off. So, stiction was kind of something we saw really right up through the mid-80s to the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. And as recording formats changed, so we went from linear, where we were recording along the length of the tape from one end of the tape to the other, we then... Uh, created something called helical scan recording where you still record from one end of the tape to the other, but you do it at an angle rather than straight along the tape, and the tape head is rotating while it's recording. So a whole bunch of things come into play to make sure that that tape is written correctly, uh, including a spinning head at a different speed to the, to the speed of the tape moving across it. And if you have a drive that goes slightly out of alignment or some electrical issue that causes the tape head to spin not quite perfectly, you can have all kinds of trouble reading your data. So okay. one of them was more of a physical media thing with stiction. The next one, the next one was kind of some hardware uh, issues that we created trying to get fancy with the way that we recorded data. Um, and, and then now we've gone from writing tapes that have nine tracks on it 
to LTO7 now has over 3,500 tracks in the same space. So we've managed to, uh, you know, put a hundred times more tracks into the same space, which means the slightest imperfection or a tape slightly getting damaged can affect an awful lot of the data because there's so many tracks in such a small space. So those are some of the samples of problems that we've seen. Um, and there's hundreds others that I could bring up. Okay, and uh, I also read a, um, a news article about IBM and Sony, I guess, being able to store up to about 330 terabytes onto a small tape. So That's right, yeah. definitely the uh, capacity is growing, and um, it's getting a little bit scary to have that much data on the tape. <laughs> um, it, it is. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it is outstripping disk, but if you lose that one tape, you're going to lose an awful lot of data. So, um, right. uh, you know, you, you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket with a tape that holds that much uh, that much data. But we need something because we're creating data like we've never done before. So, Right. So you, you better have a second copy of that, uh, or I guess you don't worry about your, your cost of making a second copy. Or we can talk about some new age solutions, which I think is why I have you on the show, right? What are some of the solutions uh, to um, to this dilemma or I guess what, what we're running into or what we're seeing right now in the industry as far as uh, tape and um, some of the issues with tape? Well, like, uh, my specific area of, of interest and expertise is in the legacy uh, issue and that is the tapes created yesterday that I that I believe are dead as opposed to the tapes they're going to create tomorrow with the new IBM 300 terabyte tapes. So in looking at these large collections, um, if you review the tape storage companies that store these tapes in vaults, you can very quickly see uh, that these are billion dollar companies that store tapes on shelves. That's what they do. They don't do anything else. Uh, and they make an awful lot of money at it, and that's because there's an awful lot of tapes. Now, the, the tapes uh, go back as uh, in the oil industry, for, for as an example. Um, they routinely reuse the same data to do different exercises on the data. So unlike a, a major corporate like an insurance company who might back up their, their server and they may never look at those files again, Oil companies tend to go back and look at these things on a, on a routine basis. So a lot of what I've learned about ways to, to challenge this continual storage cycle is from oil industry examples. So uh, it might be a little bit difficult to explain without a picture, but um, okay. if, you, if you looked back uh, over the last 50 years of the cost of storing uh, data in the cloud, you'd quickly realize that there was no cloud many, many years ago. But if there was, it would have been very, very expensive. And the cost of cloud has been on a constant, sharp decrease. It's now at 0.004 of a cent per gigabyte or something like that in the Amazon platform. Um, However, if you looked at your tape collection, um, you you might have created a tape, uh, say, 15 years ago that holds two gigabytes. So what we're saying is you can store that two gigabyte tape in an offsite vault, and you might get charged a dollar per tape per month to store them in one of these vaults. Or if you copy the data off and put it into, uh, once again, Amazon as an example, it might cost you 0.008 of a cent. So the economics of cloud uh, decreasing in cost versus 
leaving your tapes doing nothing in offside storage has has significantly made a new market where it is actually cheaper to store your data off of the tape in the cloud rather than leaving it sitting in a vault. The real problem is how how do you move a hundred million tapes uh, from vaults into the cloud uh, to access them? Right. And you know that that will continue to be a challenge, um, uh, but it is possible. You just have to think on on a very large scale. Uh, if you can do it with one tape, then you can do it with with a hundred thousand tapes. So, um, really, the economics of of the cost, the decreasing cost of cloud versus the physical vaults, which are very hard to reduce their cost. They have fixed overheads and they have real estate, and they they charge what they charge, and you you just kind of have to live with it. So. Um, I think the the intersection of those two costs now being more feasible to put it in the cloud is, is, has opened new doors to do something about these this massive collection so that the second largest collection of data ends up connected to the first and most significant collection of data, which is online at the moment. And if we can bring it all into one place, then you can start applying analytics and big data and looking at your true history of how your organization has performed and deep diving into things that you previously didn't even know existed. So it's um, that, you know, that, that pool of legacy data is the foundation stone of, um, of, of, of predictive analytics. You know, you need to look at the past to be able to predict the future. Unfortunately, just about every major corporate's past is on tape sitting in a vault inaccessible. Okay. So, so I, I guess, I guess in the oil industry, right? So give me give me an example. So you mentioned, I guess, moving data to the cloud, uh, moving moving data from from some of your stored tapes to the cloud. So yeah, the cost, uh, of course, is uh, phenomenal compared to I guess where it's currently stored, and it's it's a very feasible option to move I guess these large volumes of data to the cloud because you know it's getting cheaper. By the, by the minute, probably right, and the benefits are also awesome as well. I guess from a recovery standpoint, you can probably get the data back um, maybe maybe a little bit quicker, and you don't have to wait. I guess until you you have to physically mount a tape or actually retrieve a tape from from an offsite location. Uh, so I guess going a little bit deeper, or maybe walking me through a scenario. How how do you convince um, someone to I guess make that shift or migrate their data from physical tape into the cloud. How do you do that? So um, let's we'll take an example of a client who has uh, ten thousand tapes in storage in physical vault. Okay. Um, and let's say that client is paying one dollar per tape per month to store those tapes. That's that's a not a uh, not a number I've plucked out of the air. That's a real number that I see charged in Australia, for instance, okay. uh, for, for tape storage. So we have a client there that's paying $10,000 a month to store their legacy archive. They sign a multi-year contract because they know they're just going to have to keep storing it and they don't really have a solution to it. So they commit themselves to 10000 a month for, say, three years. So that's $360,000 worth of tape storage that buys them absolutely nothing other than an air-conditioned room where the tapes will sit and they cross their fingers that they don't need to access it. Um, If you look at the the cloud option, so for instance, uh, the company that I uh, founded um, will take those 10,000 tapes 
we will copy those tapes into the cloud free of charge, so there's no cost uplift. The cost to store them in the cloud will be far less than what it is in a vault. Um, and uh, what we do is we just charge a margin on that storage. So at for no cost, a client with 10,000 tapes can go from paying 10,000 a month for dead storage to paying 10,000 a month for active online cloud-based uh, virtual tape storage. So we virtualized the tape. We virtualized the tape drive uh, so that you don't need to maintain your legacy tape drives anymore. And online, you can retrieve a tape, which is virtual, load it into a virtual tape drive, rewind it if you want, skip to a file, and do all the things you would conventionally do with a real tape drive, except we've just virtualized the tape drive. So a client can go and still pay 360000 over three years, but in our model, they end up with all their data liberated mm -hmm. uh, for the same cost as doing absolutely nothing. And then they can apply their tools and their big data and their analytics to it to learn things that they you know, previously didn't even know existed because the data was tucked away in a vault inaccessible. Um, and of course, they go from what could take days or weeks to restore their data to a couple of hours to get to the file of interest that they're that they're trying to get to. So, um, so that's kind of how our model works. That's that's an easy way uh, to move. Uh, we can move uh, up to thirty to forty thousand tapes a month in one of our facilities. Um, so, doing millions of tapes is not is not out of the question. It just takes a bit of time. Wow. Okay. All right, and uh, I was also reading a an interesting study by IDC, which says that um, there, there's a shift currently right now, and 60% of the world's data will be created and managed by businesses in 2025. And, of course, that's driven by a lot of uh, different life-critical applications and uh, embedded systems, uh, IoT or the Internet of Things, uh, machine learning, and true mobile and real-time data. So literally data is just being created from every nook and cranny that you can even think about. So you, you, you touched on, uh, I guess, your new company, right? Uh, it's called uh, TapeArc. And right. yeah. uh, that, that kind of reminds me of the uh, biblical analogy of Noah's Ark, right? So you have all this data that we're swimming in, and I guess you um, and your team has built an ark to take on this trove of data, right? So I guess tell me a little bit about uh, the company and um, I guess what are some of the interesting things that you are starting to do uh, in this space uh, right now? Sure, okay. Well, the the tape arc concept was really to, uh, to call all the data out of the vaults and get it onto the arc uh, in a virtualized format. Um, so... One of the biggest challenges is not so much that uh, the tape is stored off-site. It's that when you actually want to use it, you would need the old tape drive to read it. I mean, that's the common denominator. If you want to move this data from physical tape to the cloud, there's one thing that is paramount, and that is you must have the tape drive. You, you, you simply can't transfer the data any other way. So, um, so what we have built is uh, uh, three primary pieces of intellectual property. One of them is a mass migration system uh, where we can take, um, it's an automated system uh, where we can take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of tapes and read them uh, uh, super quickly, uh, uh, 
into a disk repository that's transferred into a cloud account. We predominantly use Amazon for that um, for that for that storage. Um, so the first piece of intellectual property was a mass migration system to be able to handle the tens of thousands of tapes that come in. The second part of the system was that we virtualized the tape and we virtualized the tape drive. So anybody who's keeping legacy equipment in their data center in case they need to do a restore does not need to do that anymore with our solution. They can just, uh, as I said, load a virtual tape into a virtual tape drive online and point their backup application or their restore application to that tape drive and treat it as though it was connected directly to their application um, and perform the restore online. Um, And the third piece of technology is really our client access portal where they can go in, search for a tape or search the content of a tape and retrieve individual files or ask for restores or ask for mail to be split out of um, exchange databases or whatever it is they might need done. Um, so those are probably our three, three primary pieces of intellectual property that, that would differentiate us from, from anyone else. And our core focus is taking a physical tape A and creating a virtual tape A as an identical copy to allow companies then to address their data. That's, that's our, our goal is to move uh, and virtualize as many offsite tapes as we possibly can. Okay, awesome. So I guess uh, wrapping up here, I just want to kind of touch on a couple lightweight topics here. So I, I remember in our conversations um, several several weeks ago that um, uh, there was some type of, uh, what, what was it, a, uh, an Ethiopian data odyssey? You, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, about uh, seven or eight years ago, we uh, I received um, uh, an email from the Ethiopian uh, Ministry of Mines. And uh, in... Most countries around the world, when a, when a company comes in to explore for oil or gold or iron ore or whatever it is, um, there's usually legal requirements that when you're finished your exploration program, you have to leave your exploration data set with the government so that they can use that again if another company wants to come look at the same area. And they set about making guidelines. In Ethiopia, it was no different. They, they had some basic guidelines, um, and in Ethiopia, there were... Uh, Chinese companies working and Russian companies working and Western companies working to look for oil. Um, So the Ethiopian Mines Department contacted us and and they had uh, 7,000-1980s vintage exploration data sets created by uh, a Russian oil company recorded in a Russian format Mm -hmm. on, on, uh, you know, 40-year-old tape. And uh, the story that was given to me was that the tapes were, were always stored in a nice air-conditioned room, but they no longer had the equipment to read those tapes. Um, what could they do to uh, to liberate that data because they wanted to share the data with other exploration companies to use? So we um, mobilized a team of six people, uh, 15 old tape drives from the 1980s, uh, had to create our own power systems in the Ethiopian Mines Department, um, and uh, and and did a, uh, a massive restore job on all these tapes. Um, the some of the interesting things were a that the, the data was recorded in a Russian format, and we had to decode that. Mm-hmm. All of the documentation about what they did was in Russian, so we had to decode that. Um, and all of the tapes were stiction affected and required 
special heat treatment that we applied to them in order to harden the binder and drive the moisture out before we could read them. So it was a um, it was a super rewarding uh, project because we saved uh, something worth tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for the Ethiopian government. Wow. It invited new new parties in to explore, and they were given a very coherent data set to use as their base data. And um, you know, I think it'll pay dividends for them uh, in the future. And at the end of the project, we took all of our computer systems and we donated them uh, to a charity locally in, in Ethiopia and gave them some, um, uh, some, some Windows boxes and a few things for their, uh, for their orphanage, which was also quite good. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. It sounds like, I guess if they gave out Nobel Peace Prizes for um, IT, right, you, you guys would be up there, right? I would definitely nominate you. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Guy. Uh, thank you so much for, pro- uh, for providing us information about um, your new company, Tape Arc. And um, I'm just glad you were able to make it on the show, and hopefully we can bring you on again. Thank you. I uh, appreciate you. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Uh, best of luck. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. I appreciate it. Have a great one, and see you next time.